All right, good to see everybody today. Hope you're doing well. I have one joke today, and I keep making it, so I'm going to make it one more time. Um, for those of you involved with uh, Vista Ridge, we're all looking forward to Winterfest this evening. So that's my one joke. Because it's supposed to be Fall Fest at, at the school tonight. But anyway, so yeah, I'm going to keep making that joke. I kind of ruined it because now I told everybody already. But anyway, so that's tonight, and uh, we'll see how that goes. So yeah, good deal. All right, appreciate everybody I saw out there yesterday morning. I did uh, chapel at Mr. Ridge yesterday, and I got there, and it was like half the church was there uh, volunteering and getting things in order and getting things going. So I appreciate everybody who's been involved in participating, and uh, we will trust that uh, all will go as it should. Because, because we trust the Lord. But anyway, we'll see how it goes, and uh, hopefully everything will come off this evening just fine. I'm very appreciative to Molly for the last two Sabbaths. Pastor Molly did a fabulous job here uh, speaking for us the last two weeks. One scheduled, last Sabbath was scheduled. The week before that was not because I wasn't feeling great, but uh, she stepped in and did that. And then uh, all the way back to Dina, the Sabbath before that, did such a good job here. So it's actually been three weeks for me since I've been up here, uh, I guess four technically. So, so I'm happy to be back. Uh, a little bit on the schedule. I'll be here today and, and then next Sabbath I'll be speaking again. And we're actually going to connect those two messages. I'll talk more about that as we get further along today. Uh, and then, Lord willing... Alicia will be here on November 11 uh, to tell you the story uh, of our son Nathan and what he went through when he was 14 years old. Now, I say Lord willing because this week I had to send Alicia back to Florida. Um, I promise we're not having issues. It's actually going very well in our marriage. But uh, it's extended family that is the challenge, and they all happen to live in Florida. And this time it is technically Nathan who is the reason she's there. Now, not to worry, he's not having life-threatening conditions, but he is having very uncomfortable conditions. And it's related to what she will tell you uh, November 11th. So I'm just going to leave that kind of as a teaser uh, for all of that coming up, because you're going to want to be here that day for that. So that's where we're at, and that's what's going on. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad for everybody that's here today. And uh, yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray your spirit now as we reflect on your word. Uh, we want to strike the right balance as we live in these days, uh, these days before your coming. Help us understand what spirit we should have in our hearts as we reflect today. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot of stressful events in the world. Now, in fairness, there's often a lot of stressful events in the world, but it just kind of feels like right now there's there's quite a few stressful events. We've been enduring uh, the, the, the reality of the war in Ukraine for quite a while now. That's been going on for quite a while. My neighbor, right out the front of my house, if, if uh, you know, when I raise the shades, he's got a Ukrainian flag that he flies there in his backyard. And that, that a lot of people have done that uh, to show support. Uh, for the Ukrainian people and what has been a very difficult time there. Um, there, are, there are numerous intranational and international disputes going on with varying degrees of violence in various places of the world at any given time. 
There's, there's civil wars going on. There's border conflicts going on. There's things that flare up from time to time. And, and, and anymore with our capacity to, to get news from around the world and from different places, we're inundated with these things. And all of those things, we do find them troubling. But, but the thing that tends to set us off the most is when there is is trouble and stress in the Middle East. And particularly, it tends to get our attention, uh, and these events seem to take on a heightened significance whenever Israel is involved. And you will see it ripple through society and through culture, and, and particularly within Christianity, stress rising whenever there is, there is some sort of literal conflict in which Israel is involved. And this is also becomes very interesting from a political perspective because you will see uh, people taking positions related to these events often seemingly based more on their starting point of politics than necessarily on the humanitarian reality going on. Now, it's not my purpose today to take a political position on any of these things. Uh, I think that as, as believers, we can be in agreement that as a general saying, we would prefer there not be war and conflict and people dying. That is consistent with, with our perception of reality and the new reality as created in Jesus Christ. But, but for me to come here and tell you exactly uh, a, a political reality where you ought to stand on Ukraine, where you ought to stand on the issues of Israel and Gaza, where you ought to stand on these. Th- that's not my purpose. I trust that the Lord can help you to find your way to conclusions on these things. But I do want to step back from the whole of it and ask the question, how in the sense of God's purpose should we look at these things? How should we look at these things? Particularly conflicts involving Israel. Now, you'll get a lot of different answers to that question, depending on who you ask, and you'll even get a lot of different answers within Christianity itself, because Israel plays a huge role in one particular uh, eschatological view, end-time view, Uh, generally known as the dispensational theory. The nation of Israel plays a a big role in this. I got company. A big role in this. And you will, wow, lots of company. All right. And you will see uh, a lot of, of different things said within Christianity related to this. And often even between members within the church. So today, I want to tell you what I believe about these things, and give you at least some evidence to support my views. Now, I can't promise you that I'm right on everything, but I hope that what I say today at least gives you a starting point where you can formulate your conclusions. But to that end, we're going to have an interesting starting point, and maybe what you would think is an unlikely place to start with a discussion about how do we view the realities of conflict involving Israel in the Middle East. And I want to start in the book of Acts. So we're going to start in the book of Acts, chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 8. And there we find these words. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this is the Stephen who was one of the deacons who was appointed by the apostles for the purpose of making sure that there was fairness within the distribution uh, of, to the, to, particularly to the needy widows and so forth. And there had arisen a crisis between the Hellenized Jews and the, and, and the more proper Jews, depending on your perspective there, as to what was taking place. And Stephen was one of the ones appointed. And it turns out, though, that the Spirit was with him, and he was having impact far beyond just that. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So you've got this synagogue in Jerusalem that was made up of a lot of people who were uh, from, from a lot of other places, and we could probably say were the more Hellenized of the group. And they're disputing with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders of the, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Talking about the temple, talking about Jerusalem. So they're saying he never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, the text itself specifically indicates that these were, in fact, false witnesses. But it does cause me to wonder, what was Stephen actually saying that led them to make these misrepresentations? Because one could argue that what they claimed Stephen was saying was, in fact, what would ultimately happen. And if, in fact, Stephen was saying things along these lines, it would have put him well ahead of his time, even as a believer in Jesus, for it would take a long time for the rest of the church, as it would develop, it would take a long time for the rest of the church to acknowledge that after Jesus, everything was different. And that's a key point that I want you to understand and that informs all that I want to say to you about the events in Israel and Gaza and their significance to world events and possibly the end time, and that is this. After Jesus, everything is different. What do I mean by that? Well, let's try to walk this out. Jesus made some very interesting statements that I think we don't often spend enough time on. And here's one of them. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus has just told a parable to the people about the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples come to him with a question. And here it is. Matthew 13 verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, 
To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is the fascinating saying of Jesus. He's telling those who believe in him that they have gained a knowledge that will enlighten their understanding enable, and enable them to comprehend things that those without that light will never understand. You could almost understand from this how the heresy of Gnosticism developed. Gnosticism was this heresy that said there is this secret knowledge and you need to know the secret knowledge and as you gain the secret knowledge you will become a part of the people. And, and they took it way too far. But there is at least a seed of truth in it because Jesus says there are things you can understand because you believe in me that those who don't believe in me will never understand. But Jesus goes on, verse 16, Matthew 13, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets, catch this part, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is a startling saying. Because Jesus is suggesting that his disciples, which we know to be a group larger than the 12, we spent time on that, the 12 were apostles, but the disciples was a larger group, that Jesus' disciples are blessed because they see and hear what many righteous people and indeed even prophets long to see and hear but never did. The implication here is that all those who have gone before Jesus, including the prophets, never saw the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the clear implication here is that none of them, no matter whether they were prophets or whether they were the most righteous person on earth in their time, none of them could have understood the fullness of God's purpose as fulfilled in Jesus. Now, if you think I go too far here, consider these next two passages. The first is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. And it occurs shortly after John's disciples come to Jesus to question whether or not he is indeed the one. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now this is verse 28. Catch this verse. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is Jesus saying? So, if John is the greatest of those born of women, 
how can it be that one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he? And it is here that we realize John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The voices that received divine revelation about the one who was to come. But none of them, none of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, ever understood fully who Jesus truly was and what he would do. That is, not just come to save Israel, but in fact come to save all the humans of the earth. Even John himself is confused by what Jesus is doing. And at this point, the twelve, the apostles, and the rest of the disciples didn't know in full yet either because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, died, and risen again. Which, as I suggested to you at the beginning, is the reality that changes everything and how we view everything, including modern-day warfare in the Middle East. We see this reality of the incompleteness of the knowing and understanding of even the greatest of the Old Testament figures mirrored in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These are the heroes we're talking about. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, catch this next line, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You see, after Jesus, everything is different. Yes, all the Old Testament heroes, but they did not receive the fullness of of the revelation because the fullness of the revelation did not come until Jesus came after Jesus everything was different or maybe said better Jesus was the first true chance to fully understand what had always been God's purpose from the beginning now Israel played a huge role in God's purpose but an earthly kingdom called Israel that could trace its lineage back to a man named Abraham through another man named Jacob was never God's ultimate purpose, neither then nor now. It never was about the kingdoms of men. It has always been about the kingdom of God. That is why we get this from Jesus 
when he's speaking with Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See how Pilate is fixated in the kingdoms of men? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So here it is. Jesus is a king. In fact, Jesus is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. So he is, in fact, the king of Israel, if you will, but not Israel as the nation on earth, but rather Israel as representing all the people of God. And the manner in which Jesus receives his coronation to this kingship defies the imagination of all of his contemporaries and leaves us marveling even to this day. John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I suspect that Stephen was starting to understand this because the implication that in Jesus all the trappings and foolishness of earthly kingdoms disappear and all that remains is the kingdom of God that is not of this world but of the world to come. I suspect Stephen was starting to understand this. And to that end, I suspect Stephen was saying all these things are about to change. This was a hard truth, even for the twelve to embrace, the, the, the apostles. And they seem to have done so at differing rates and to differing degrees. It literally took the intervention of the Holy Spirit through the household of Cornelius for, for Peter to begin to understand leading him to take an action that would get him in trouble with certain others who had not come so far in their understanding yet, but that after Jesus, everything is different. Acts 10, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days, but we jump forward. Hebrew, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also would receive the word of God. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. It would take Paul to put into words something Jesus had said at the very beginning of his ministry to a woman in Samaria. We start with Jesus' words, John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in fairness, no one could fully understand what Jesus was saying at this point. But eventually, Paul would rephrase it like this. Galatians 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith that would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you see, it is no longer about an earthly kingdom. It is no longer about your ancestry or even your gender. We are all saved the same way through Jesus, and we all become Abraham's offspring by faith and become members of the kingdom of God, but that's a kingdom that's not of this world. This reality was shocking even to Paul. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. He's talking about a mystery here. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is this mystery? which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's he saying here? He's saying none of the Old Testament prophets understood this. They may have written in the context, but they didn't understand it. Now John the Baptist hinted at it a little bit because he said God can raise up sons for Abraham from these stones. 
but none of them actually understood it. And what is this mystery? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It was always there, but it was never understood. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this reality was not achieved and made known by any kingdom of humanity, Israel included, but was accomplished through Jesus alone, as Paul says in what in in some ways has always felt to me like a bit of a dubious distinction, except for the fact that it's true. You know, sometimes you're like, wow, I don't know that you're interpreting that right, but it's true. And here it is, Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now offspring is maybe not the best word there. The, the, uh, some of the other translations say to his seed. Now when you think about Abraham and his seed, the assumption in your mind is, oh, well we're talking about Israel. But Paul makes an interesting point. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed. It does not say and to offsprings, or and to seeds, in other words, multiple children, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This point that Paul makes is he's claiming this Old Testament passage that said the promise is to you and your offspring was intentionally singular because it was about Jesus, not about Israel. That is an interesting interpretation, isn't it? Can you see why Paul got in trouble? Can you see why they were unhappy with him? Because the point Paul is making is this. It really is all about Jesus, and after Jesus, everything changes. And we then have to view everything after Jesus differently than we did before. The disciples came to understand that this new kingdom of God that Jesus had inaugurated was so much more than what they had known. And in fact, all of them, Jews and Gentiles, entered this kingdom the same way. This was the stress at the Jerusalem Council. You remember, Paul was out baptizing Gentiles but not circumcising Gentiles. And the big argument came together, and in Acts 15 they met. And here are the words of Peter from Acts 15, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, it's fascinating what's happening here because even the, the apostles themselves are not ready for the full implication of what Peter has just said. 
It is Peter's admission that even though most of them who are Jews are still going through the motions of the law. And in fact, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem later on, they actually say to him, there's a lot of people who believed in Jesus, but they're still following the law. So, so that they don't think bad of you, we want you to take these people and go through the motions of the law so that they will say, oh, well, Paul still keeps the law. And you know, that's what led to him being arrested in the whole thing. So they were still going through the motions. But Peter's admission here is saying that they realize it's not the mechanics of the law that saves. Therefore, the Gentiles are not required to keep this ceremonial law in order to be saved. But here's the part they're not actually even ready for. By extension, no one wants to say it on that day, but neither do the Jews. You see, in order to be saved, it's not about the mechanics of the law. It's not about heredity. It's about faith in God through Jesus Christ. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's the same. Now, if you want to keep customs, that's fine. But don't mistake it for righteousness. Don't mistake it for what saves you. And they were trying to come to this understanding. And it was so hard. And so it is at this point that I want to interject a highly relevant quote that I came upon from one of my former professors at the seminary, a man by the name of John Pauline. He currently is in the Loma Linda area. That summarizes the implications of the case I've been building so far. So here are his words. Old Testament Israel was made up of the literal descendants of Jacob in their 12 tribes settled in the promised land that was centered on the city of Jerusalem. So it's all very literal. So Israel in the Old Testament was identified in literal and local terms. Gentiles consisted of everyone outside Israel's national and geographical boundaries. Those wishing to worship the God of Israel, therefore, would find him at the temple in Jerusalem. But when the temple was destroyed and the descendants of Jacob were scattered to Babylon, God used those circumstances to open up the possibility of a broader definition of Israel. According to the New Testament, a new Israel was established in the person of Jesus Christ. He came out of Egypt, he passed through the waters, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and called 12 disciples to form the 12 tribes of a new spiritual Israel. He was Israel as Israel was intended to be. Just as his life, death, and resurrection were modeled on the history and experience of Israel, so the experience of his disciples was to be modeled on him and through him on Old Testament Israel. So when the New Testament talks about the church, it often does so in the language of Israel. The church in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament is modeled on the experience of Old Testament Israel. But this is not true in a direct sense. They are modeled on Israel because they are in relationship with the one who embraced the whole history 
and the experience of Israel himself. In contrast to Old Testament Israel, which was literal and local in nature, the new Israel, the church, is spiritual and worldwide because it is grounded in relationship with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. This Israel is made up of people from every nation, tribe, and language. They are found in every geographical corner of the world. And through the Holy Spirit, they have no need to go to Jerusalem. God is equally accessible from anywhere on earth. Likewise, opposition to Jesus and the church is spiritual and worldwide when it appears in Revelation. If one truly grasps the significance of this New Testament redefinition of Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nation, one's reading of the Bible will never be the same. After Jesus, everything is different. And all of this brings us finally to the main point today. What is the meaning of the fighting in Israel today? And for that, we return to the words of Jesus, uh, the words in our, in our reading today that Debbie read for us, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now catch this next line. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. And catch this. But the end is not yet. Important note. Wars and rumors of war will be the normal condition of the world of humans from the time of Jesus until his second coming. That's what Jesus says. Okay, here's what normal is going to be. There's going to be war. There's going to be a rumor of war. The fact that we live in peace is an anomaly. Be thankful for it. Because war is normal in this world. These things are in fact a sign that things are going as Jesus said they would. But note, they are not a sign of the end, regardless of who's in the war. And further, we who believe in Jesus are not to be alarmed when wars occur beyond the appropriate alarm for the reality of carnage and wasted life. Yes, that should bother us. But it should not alarm us because Jesus told us this is how it's going to be. The point is this. While we may have cause to be concerned about wars, they are not themselves any indication of fulfillment of prophecy other than the prophecy that they will take place until the end. Or in and of themselves, signs of the second coming, even if sometimes these wars that take place bear some resemblance to something that this or that Old Testament prophet might have said. But you can't read it that way anymore because everything changes after Jesus. 
We cannot read those Old Testament prophecies the same way anymore. For the story after Jesus is no longer about the human kingdom of Israel, but rather the spiritual kingdom of God, a kingdom not of this world. And as a result, we must read all those Old Testament prophecies in this new light and understand that references to Israel or locations in Israel, even if they're in New Testament prophecies, are not to be understood literally, but rather spiritually and figuratively. What I'm telling you is an example of why the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest of the prophets who came before. For we have the knowledge of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and this is the knowledge that changes everything. Now, don't miss an important point here that many miss. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is an earthly manifestation that too often itself behaves as badly as the kingdoms of men. Now, the church is a necessary reality, for it enables those of us who are part of this eternal kingdom of God to engage with each other and engage with the world. But the church is not the kingdom. It's an earthly manifestation subject to our weakness and failing. But the point to remember is this. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. So having said all this, what then is the sign of the end of the age? If it's not wars and rumors of wars, if it's not conflict in Israel, what is the sign of the end of all things? Well, thankfully, Jesus has told us. Matthew 24, verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, context on that. Too often we have, we have read that as all a future reality. No, if you're not paying attention, if you've not been in the right places of the world, this has been going on since the time of Jesus. There's been persecution. People have been killed for the name of Jesus. It's happening right now in some places in the world. This is a description of normal. But if you hold on to your faith, Jesus will bring you through. There's been hard times. There will be hard times. We may or may not have to live through them. But that's not for us to worry about. For us to focus on is hanging on to our faith, trusting that Jesus will bring us through regardless of what comes. But even hard times are not given by Jesus as the sign of the end of all things because there's always been hard times. So what is, in fact, the sign 
of Jesus coming again. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The sign is not wars. The sign is not suffering. That's been going on since Jesus was here. That's been going on from before. The sign is the gospel to the world. The end comes when God determines that as many as possible have had a chance to hear and believe and not one day sooner. So I invite the band to come back up. We're about to close here. How do we close this out? First of all, by saying, I will be following up this message next week with a continuation of sorts where we'll look at what I believe to be the great framing prophecy of the Bible that explains the history of the world and how the history of the world will end. So we will talk about that next Sabbath. Before today, I want to end with these words from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what's the word here? Yeah, there's war in Israel. There's war in Ukraine, but there's been war. And war is not the sign. So don't be alarmed, but also don't be sloppy. Don't be lazy. Because the day of the Lord will come. 
And our job until the day of the Lord is to share the message of Jesus with the world. Don't be carried away with the error of lawless people. Don't lose your stability. Be at peace. Yeah, we'll hear reports. There's bad stuff. But Jesus is overcoming the world. And we are a part of his kingdom. So we don't have to be slaves of fear. Slaves of worry. Constantly looking at this. Constantly looking at that. No. Focus on Jesus. Because he's going to come when the time is right. Let's be ready for that day.